This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thank you for downloading or streaming this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We travel back in time with brand new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you hit the subscribe button to get automatic updates to your podcast feed. This week we're putting your questions to our experts on the Georgian and Regency period. It's a chapter of English history that many of us will be familiar with, from Jane Austen novels and their TV and film adaptations, to the Netflix series Bridgerton, to Grand Houses and the Industrial Revolution. But of course, there's a lot more to it than all that, and helping us out with the detail is Senior Properties Historian Dr Amy Boynton. Hello. Hello, Charles. Great to be here. Lovely to have you back on as our singular expert on this particular period, which I believe is your specialism and your favourite. Yes, absolutely. I've done a lot of research into the 18th century over the years, so I'm really glad to share my knowledge. Well, let's get into the basics then for people who aren't familiar with it. And to start us off, Margaret has got in touch to ask, what's the difference between the Georgian and Regency period? Okay, so the Georgian period technically spans across the reigns of the four Hanoverian Georges. And this began in 1714 with George I, and it ended in 1830 with George IV. And it is sometimes, though, extended to encompass the short reign of William IV, who was the younger brother of George IV. And so the Regency is a subset of that Georgian era, and it refers to the period during which George, Prince of Wales, who was later George IV, officially ruled as regent from 1811 to 1820. But there's another slight complication there because sometimes the term regency is applied to an even longer period dating between about 1795 and 1837. So I'm sure that all sounds quite complicated, but it's actually quite straightforward as we'll see throughout this podcast. Okay, so broadly speaking, the regency period slots in within the wider Georgian period But the Regency period has two different definitions depending on who you are and how you're looking at it, basically. Exactly. So will we generally class the Regency period as being sort of towards the second half um, and latter third of this wider Georgian period? Yeah, I think generally we sort of think of it more at the beginning of the 19th century. So very much a Jane Austen vibe and the Bridgerton vibe, that's Regency. Whereas the Georgian period is more sort of substantially the 18th century, the 1700s. That's an easy way to look at it. Understood. Okay. So moving on to another question. The Georgian period begins in 1714 with the first of these kings named George, as you've described, George I and ends in 1837, I suppose, finally, with the start of Queen Victoria's reign. Would that be about a fair assessment? Yeah, definitely. But Julie asks, how did England end up with this King George I, who could barely speak English, as you've intimated, this first Hanoverian king? Right. Yeah. So to look at this, we have to actually jump back to the Act of Settlement of 1701. And this act declared that in the event of no legitimate Protestant issue from King William III and his wife Mary, or of Queen Anne, the crowns of England and Ireland were to then settle upon Princess Sophia, who was the Electress and Dowager Duchess of Hanover. 
And the reason for this is because Sophia was the granddaughter of King James I, who was also, you know, King James VI of Scotland. And Sophia was chosen as the heir to the throne because she was Protestant. England did not want a Catholic king. But the reason why it didn't go to Sophia in the end is because she died less than two months before Queen Anne. And so then the sort of throne went to her eldest son, who was George, who then became George I of England. And because he'd been brought up in Germany, he was completely German and spoke German as his native language. Wow. So we kind of ended up with um, someone that we weren't expecting, effectively, as a nation. Yeah, I suppose we were. They were always sort of in line to the throne. But I mean, there were lots of people that they had to jump over to arrive at Sophia and then her son. And it's all because of religion. They wanted a Protestant monarch, not a Catholic one. So to summarise, James I's granddaughter, they wanted a Protestant ruler, but she wasn't around because she died. And then, of course, it passed to her son, George. Yeah, that's right. Who was German, right. Okay. Now, moving slightly further forward through the Georges, some people might have already heard of this um, madness of King George III, which was a 1994 film, and before that, a 1991 play. So what condition did George III have? This is a question from Valerie. So it's generally, and now believed that George was suffering from about, so they called it acute mania. So it was sort of, his symptoms were very excitable. He was very hyperactive. And this resembled the manic phase of what is now known as bipolar disorder. And during his episodes of his acute mania, George suffered from hallucinations. He would also talk nonstop sort of gibberish for hours at a time. And he sometimes made inappropriate advances towards women. And it was just all completely out of character for him. And he suffered violent fits that were so, so sort of violent that his servants had to pin him down on the floor to prevent him from injuring himself. So it really was, it was really terrible for him because he was, you know, very much liked. And to have this happen to him was really, very sad. Was he also the king who was on the throne whilst the American Revolution was taking place? Yes, that's right. And that really affected him deeply. He felt like a great failure, even though it was pretty much out of his hands at this time. I see. Interesting one. Okay, well, we've established that the Regency period was set within this wider Georgian period. Richard, though, wants to know what made the Regency period important enough to be recognised by historians as a distinct period, even though it only lasted for what he says was nine years, although we've established that there are different interpretations of this. Yeah, so uh, just to sort of go over it again. So although the official Regency did last for nine years when the Prince Regent was, you know, in power... The period is often perceived to have been much longer, and it's commonly, though loosely, applied to that period from about 1795 until 1837. And this longer period is characterised by the distinctive fashions and styles of the period. It was also a sort of a time in England that was noted for its elegance and its achievements in the fine arts, architecture, fashion, culture, literature, etc. It was just, it's become a subset of the larger Georgian time. Moving on to food and some questions now from people about uh, what people in the past ate during the Georgian period. Paul's got in touch to ask, How similar or different were people's diets in comparison to what we eat today? 
I think the diet of the Georgians was actually fairly similar to today, except that they ate far more meat. And Georgians also enjoyed more parts of the animal than I think we do today. So things like kidneys, tripe, offal, such as ears, tongue, tail, feet, they were all generally enjoyed, which we might not enjoy as much today. So just like today, items such as bread, cheese and dairy products were very much staples of the diet. And so, yeah, I think overall, pretty much a similar diet. They also ate some more varied sort of um, meats, didn't they? I think ours mm. are probably a bit more limited. I think they indulged in a bit more game and more birds, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, more, yeah, just meat, meat, meat and all kinds of meats, I'd say. And especially at Christmas, if you could afford it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. A similar question from Cat96790 on Instagram, who asks, what new foods were introduced during the Georgian period? Well, not a great deal. So although not really new foods, I would say things like tea and chocolate became very popular during the Georgian period, whereas in previous eras, they hadn't been so sort of available so people who could afford it, for example, really enjoyed drinking hot chocolate. And chocolate houses became a really common phenomenon in London and other towns around the country. And this was really pretty much only accessible to the rich and the aristocratic. And they really enjoyed like 100% cacao chocolate. And drinking this luxury beverage became an indulgence of the elite. And so I just think, yeah, that tea was also another commodity that was more accessible, but it was still expensive enough that it had to be locked away by the mistress of a house in a, in a proper tea chest to prevent servants from trying it during this period. Yes. And would, would the chocolate have been locked away in, in a similar chest? See, I don't know with that because chocolate isn't, is more difficult to preserve for a longer period of time. So I don't think, well, maybe it was, but I'm not sure. I think they must have bought it as and when they required it. But definitely during this period, like proper little drinking chocolate cups were made out of, you know, beautiful porcelain and it became a whole sort of consumer culture just with teacups. Let's talk now about one of the very obvious legacies of the Georgian and Regency periods, which are the houses and the buildings some of which, of course, cared for by English heritage and some of which we might even see as we walk around um, the United Kingdom today. So architecture-wise, we'll begin this section with a question from Tonjirojo on Instagram. Great username. What are the key features of the architecture and design from the Georgian and Regency period? Yeah, so the Georgian era saw a great increase in building. Industrial and civic buildings, townhouses and country houses were all designed more often than not in the classical style. And architects and patrons, uh, they look back to ancient Rome and Greece for inspiration. And then they designed buildings that were defined by proportion, symmetry and the correct use of the classical orders. And they were also large, weren't they? broadly yes. speaking. I mean, if we think of our houses that are delivered today, um, I suppose mm. there's planning regulations involved and land is at a premium. But I think in this period, everything is quite grand, isn't it? Yes. If you had the money to build, they certainly were. So you've got big country houses, which are built in the classical style. We also have lots of terraces in all the major towns and cities that are all uniform in their appearance. And often made out of sort of Portland stone or Bath stone. And so they're very distinctive. And several floors in, in some cases. Yes, that's right. Many, many stories. Particularly the townhouses, yeah. 
Our next question on Georgian architecture is from Nick underscore Gunnigan, also via Instagram. Doesn't seem to be a fan of the style, though, of this uh, architecture. The question is, uh, why did they vandalise so many Elizabethan and Jacobean houses in order to produce these bland slabs? (laughs) (laughs) I wonder whether it's fair to say that they were vandalised, but... I would say rather that just as today, owners wanted to make their homes tasteful, um, comfortable, convenient. And so this often required some remodeling and adaption. And I'd say more often than not, they wanted to sort of make them fashionable by sort of adding large sash windows so that the rooms were less dark. And they wanted added more fireplaces so that their houses were warmer. And they also, and this is an interesting fact, they also installed more water closets, so toilets, as a, you know, an essential facility to any home. And so rather than vandalising, maybe they were trying to just make them more sort of adaptable to the Georgian era of taste and com- convenience. Yeah, it's an interesting criticism, that one, because I think mm. if you look at some of the Victorian properties that people yes. are doing up in London <laughs> right now, they are potentially, in 100 years, people are going to be saying that they put on these awful glass facades in their back mm-hmm. gardens and they extended out their kitchens and this sort of look, you know, this sort of... Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's a difficult one. But people are fundamentally in their time are trying to adapt what they have, aren't they? Yeah, and that's to improve it. it. Yeah. yeah. They're just doing an extension fundamentally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On a similar theme, we have a question from another Instagram user, target underscore structural underscore UK which sounds like they might be a builder. How did the property owners in the Regency and Georgian period restore their older buildings? So, well, from going from adaptation to restoration, was there any restoration of older buildings? I think essentially like the main way that they restored buildings is by, you know, sort of replacing derelict roofs if they were, you know, not watertight and by just improving it as we might today, you know, replacing walls that needed, you know, repointing or redoing the windows if they were rotten, very much in a similar mindset as we are today, you know, just how would we make this house last longer? And a lot of Georgians were actually really interested in history and preservation of old buildings. So they were very careful in some instances to retain original features from previous eras. But another point is just by living in these houses and heating them, that on its own ensured that they lasted longer for the benefit of future generations. Absolutely. You do have to look after the properties that you live in. And just going back to what you said about repointing, that's basically putting mortar in between the bricks, isn't it? To ensure that you don't get any sort of erosion from rain or whatever. Okay. More Instagram architectural questions now, this time from arthur.c.clark.e. <laughs> so um, obviously not the famous author. What was the reason for the triangular design at the top of buildings? This person says, I see many buildings with this, particularly in Cambridge City Centre near the university buildings. What are they referring to exactly? Well, I think he must be referring to a pediment. So this is um, a triangular gable forming the end of a roof slope over a portico. So it is triangular, as he's saying. And 
they were sort of used as the crowning features of the building. So it's a way to make it look more grand. And the reason why they were used is because, as I mentioned before, architects were looking back to Greek and Roman examples. And this was a sort of favourite trope used on classical Roman temples. And so they thought, oh, this would be great to adapt and use them on British buildings. And I think that's really what he must be referring to. And we see a lot of them, so pediments, used to decorate buildings both in the 18th and the 19th centuries. So they're sort of a prevailing feature. And do we see this triangular shape in Greco-Roman classical architecture already? Or was this triangle added by the Georgians? So it already, yeah, was in existence in ancient architecture. And then it was sort of adapted. So rather than you know, being a grand entrance to a temple in this country, it was used as a grand entrance to a house or a grand entrance to a college building in Cambridge or Oxford, that kind of thing. Yes, or maybe a courthouse or... Yes, that's civic buildings too, very true. Yes. Yes, I, I do like that design. I think it's very um, attractive, isn't it? It it's mm, makes, it makes yeah. a statement, definitely. Judith Barnett, not sure where she's contacted us from, uh, she wants to know, how did they heat the buildings? You talked about the extra fireplaces being installed but and yes, chimneys. Yes, exactly. Yep, so fires. Yep, they used fireplaces which were fueled by wood or coal. And in order to make a house properly warm, wealthy Georgians would heat many rooms at once, which, you know, cost a lot of money. And as a result of the need for fireplaces and warmth, chimney pieces were often the focal point of a room, as they had been throughout much of history. And so during the Georgian period, they were made particularly ornamental and some were made from expensive materials such as marble and they would often be intricately carved. And you can see these this still in many buildings today. Did you used to work at one of those in your previous position before you joined English Heritage? Yes, I did. So some years ago, I worked at Holcomb Hall, which is in Norfolk, which is a really beautiful, grand classical house. And they have beautiful interiors where all, almost all of the chimney pieces are still intact from when it was built. So, And they're still functional as well? Yes, yes, they are. Wow, fantastic. Do you know how many they had on this particular oh, building? Gosh, No, but in every room, a beautiful fireplace. And in the saloon, which is the main room of the house, there were two. So, yeah, it's very, very beautiful. So was it functional as well as a status symbol to have a house, a grand country house, with all these chimneys pointing up into the air as guests would arrive by carriage, you know, to see your house? Not so much in the Georgian period. That is more dating back to the Tudors and the Stuarts, because during the Georgian period, most of the time chimney pieces are actually hidden behind sort of the roof line. So if you think of London houses, when you're walking down a street, like a terrace, and you look up, you can't really see the chimney pieces because it's hidden behind sort of the top of the house. Right. So yeah, they adapted. They, it was thought to be a bit messy breaking up the roof line. Ah, okay. Yes. I, I can understand why that was done because if, you know, you want to keep all those proportions and keep it all looking neat, don't you? Okay. Well, a warm property is always a welcome one to visit on a cold day. And during our first podcast visit to Kenwood, in fact, there was this roaring fire in the first room that we entered. And this leads us on to a question from Donna, who says, which are good properties to visit to see Georgian interiors, perhaps on a cold winter's day? Well, as you mentioned, Kenwood is an excellent example because the interiors are 
absolutely stunning and they still are intact. They are in the neoclassical style and they were designed by Robert Adam, who was a very famous architect and interior designer of the 18th century. But thinking of other examples, we have Marble Hill House in Twickenham, and that was built in the 1720s for the Countess of Suffolk. And that also retains its original classical interiors. So these are both excellent examples. But I mean, there's loads looking around the whole country. I mentioned Holcomb Hall. That's an excellent example. We also have Stowe House in Buckinghamshire, which is a school, but you can also go and visit it. That's phenomenal. And there's so many. It's too many to um, mention. Another London one is Chiswick House and Gardens. Uh, yeah, Chiswick. Yeah, that's true. That's from the same period. So if you're yeah. visiting Marble Hill, you can probably quite easily jump on a tube and uh, visit Chiswick as well yeah, on definitely. the same day. Lovely. Okay. A final question in this architectural section then from Instagram. Honey Rose OSH underscore wants to know how many Georgian houses are there still standing in England? <laughs> Gosh, this is a this is a bit of a survey, isn't it? Um, <laughs> um, I don't really know. I'd have to go out and actually count them all. But luckily, we actually have quite a lot that have survived. And so, for example, there's an impressive number of country houses. We've already discussed that a little bit. You can go in, and most of them, or a lot of them, are still open to the public. We look after some. The National Trust looks after some. Some are still in private ownership. So there's loads to go and see. And as we've also touched upon, there are amazing sort of townhouses that still survive from the 18th century. Just think of Bath, for example. That's got a whole, like a whole load of Georgian and Regency terraces and that beautiful yellow stone that you can go and see today. Yes, the famous Bath stone, which glimmers beautifully in the uh, spring and summer sunshine, I must yeah, say. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yes, really nice there. And of course, it's got the Roman baths, so it's got the Roman <laughs> connection as well. Right. So you get a double dose of history on a visit mm-hmm. to the southwest of England and, and to Bath. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about uh, the people who lived inside these buildings now and how they would dress themselves. We move on to a section about fashion. Diane has sent in this question. How did the fashion for powdered wigs come about? And what did wearing one signify? That's a really great question. So there are some theories that wigs began to be used by men in the 17th century as a means of covering syphilitic sores and hair loss. But they really became properly fashionable when the stylish King Louis XIV of France began to lose his hair. And he was a very image-conscious monarch. And so he began wearing long, elaborately curled wigs to maintain his appearance. And thus, it became a fashionable trend. And so in the 18th century, particularly the first half of the 18th century, they became an entrenched fashion staple. And as wigs became more and more popular, they became a symbol for people to flaunt their wealth. And they were very costly to buy and maintain. And they often required a hairdresser to create the elaborate hairdos that were so favoured by men and women at the time. So yeah, very much a fashion statement by the 18th century. Interesting. So do you think out of one man's sort of fear about his male pattern baldness that everyone tried to sort of almost be obsequious towards him and copy him? 
to make him feel comfortable. Uh, And then that started a trend. I mean, is that a fair comment? I think this is like, there were lots of theories, but this particular, yeah, I would say for Louis XIV, for sure. I think, you know, he, it also gave him the status of, you know, sort of never aging. And it reminds me of Queen Elizabeth I, because as she grew older, she also lost her hair and she would take to wearing these elaborate ginger wigs. And then people at her court would also copy it. So it's a, it's something that has been seen in the past as well. That's the herd mentality, isn't it, really, coming out? <laughs> of course, Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, she, I believe she had a wig, didn't she, yes. as well? And uh, her final uh, moment was yeah. that the wig fell off after she was uh, executed yes. when she lost her head. You can go back and li- listen to that episode uh, separately. OK, let's move on to another question. Andrew has one here. Who was Beau Brummel and what was his influence on men's fashion? So obviously Andrew knows something about uh, men's fashion here. Mm-hmm. So Beau Brummel or um, George Bryan, as he has his, was his actual name, was a leader of fashion and he was one of the greatest celebrities of the Regency period. So he was born in London in 1778 and his father was a private secretary to the then Prime Minister, Lord North. And Beau sort of moved to London after having been to Eton. He then went to Oxford for a brief stint and then he was sort of in the army. But he returned back to London in 1799 after he'd inherited some money from his father. And he established himself in London society and he began to impose his strong views about fashion. So he was always smart and self-assured, and he set a new standard for his male friends and contemporaries by scorning the typically ostentatious dress of the 18th century. So his style, which became known as dandyism, relied on fine quality cloth, precise tailoring, and sort of understated elegance. And it was epitomized above all by the starch cravat. And that really sort of became the most fashionable way to dress for men. Hmm. That name, Dandy, it has sort of persisted through into the 20th century, I believe. And yes. it may well have died out by now, I think, as we're into the early 21st. But uh, mm-hmm. yes, it was around in, in the sort of 50s, 60s, I believe. Yes, very true. Uh, people who took a particular care of their appearance, you know, very clean cut, very smart, that kind of idea. But also they were seen as taking almost too much sort of care over their appearance to the point where it wasn't casual anymore. Yes, interesting. I suppose uh, a nearby equivalent in recent times may have been the term metrosexual, I suppose. Mm, yeah, for, yeah, like- Maybe. Sort of a fashionable heterosexual chap. Interesting, a la David Beckham, that sort of thing. (laughs) On a more pragmatic note regarding fashion, how did ladies go to the loo in gigantic dresses and where were the chamber pots kept, according to Emma here with a question. This is Emma Elizabeth Jackson on Facebook. Let's deal with the first question, uh, which is how did they go to the loo in gigantic dresses? (laughs) Yeah, great question. Well, firstly, it's important to note that women did not wear underwear like we do today. So underneath all those layers of dresses and petticoats, they were essentially free to the elements and commando. So all they needed to do when they wanted to relieve themselves 
was use a bordeloo or a chamber pot so firstly let's talk about a bordeloo a bordeloo was a small jug a bit like a gravy boat that women could put up underneath their skirts and then you know relieve themselves or they could use a chamber pot which is essentially like a, a bowl and these chamber pots were used and sort of anywhere in the house you know they're transportable and they would be kept sort of hidden away discreetly in small cupboards conveniently located around buildings and houses so yeah that is my answer fascinating so the the one that you described similar to a gravy boat <laughs> a bordeloo it sounds a bit like what they invented for glastonbury goers i believe there's oh, a there's a product yes. that uh, you know enables ladies to go to the loo standing up so to speak yeah, but also another thing to just note, though, is that during the 18th century, water closets, as I mentioned before, they were being incorporated into designs of houses. So new houses probably had, you know, not flushable loose like we do today, but they would have been a water closet so you could go into a proper room that was, you know, for privacy that you could relieve yourself. And some older houses were adapted and water closets were inserted in. So people during the 18th century, we're beginning to, you know, see that as a proper function of a house or a building. Were these sort of on the edges of buildings or something like that so that the... Uh... Sometimes, yes. Sometimes when they were adapting an existing house, yes. But more often than not, they were quite, you know, ingenious in just converting uh, maybe an old dressing room and, you know, inserting some sort of plumbing system to put in a bathroom. So, yeah, they weren't as, you know, sort of Neanderthal-like as we think they are, they are quite sophisticated. Okay, we'll have to do an episode on um, the history of you know lavatories at some point. <laughs> Staying uh, with uh, fashion briefly, though, obviously this is a way to make a statement about your place in society and your your status. So we'll move on now to a question, a series of questions about class and society. Lady Kelly Dawn on Instagram has a question. How did the upper class get so rich? Well, they got rich through a variety of means. I mean, inheritance was one. So, you know, lots of people inherited their wealth from their parents. But land ownership was probably the primary means by which the wealthy stayed wealthy because land bought in revenue from agriculture and rents and, you know, sort of mining, anything really that you could make money from the land. But of course, there are other means of acquiring wealth, such as through commerce and industry or through stock markets, so sort of trading and banking. And as we know, there were also far more unsavory means by which some made their fortunes and stayed rich, such as through transatlantic slave trade and also colonisation. Mm. What was life like for people at the bottom of the social ladder? This is a question from Edwy26 on Instagram. Well, life could be very tough for the poor, just as in you know any era. So for those who could not find jobs or unable to work, Georgian England could be a hopeless place indeed. And although local parishes were meant to assist their poorest parishioners, there often wasn't enough money to go around, or there was also a sort of a lack of desire to help the poor because they thought that you know poor people were poor because of laziness. But in um, 1722, legislation was passed which entitled parishes to provide poor relief in the form of specially built workhouses 
And by the 1770s, there were around 2,000 such workhouses in the country, um, apparently housing nearly 100,000 people. So that was a lot of very you know, desperate people. And sometimes these workhouses were clean and comfortable, and they were meant to provide sort of basic education, rudimentary healthcare, and clean clothing. But as we know, and as it became more and more apparent in the Victorian period, sometimes the workhouses were absolutely miserable places for the poor. Right. So by the Victorian period, they'd sort of broadly declined and attracted that Dickensian sort of uh, Mm. criticism. Okay. Sel Rigby on Instagram would like to know what options did women really have to earn a living at the different levels of society? Yeah, so there are actually more working opportunities for poorer women than women of the upper classes. So poorer women could work in a variety of different jobs, such as domestic servants, basket makers, milliners, dressmakers, or in food preparation industries such as brewers, bakers, or confectioners. But if we look at wealthier women, wealthy women or women from the upper classes were not expected to work at all. Their sole purpose was to marry well and bear children. And even though women from the upper classes had better education and they could potentially have gone into professional work such as lawyers or doctors or scientists, you know, artists, architects, all of those professions, they were completely barred to women because it it was just, you know, women were not allowed to train up in any sort of professional work. So as a result, women from the upper classes were very much stuck and just had to be ladies of the houses or, you know, whatever. I think we've covered on a previous episode in The History of Butter with food historian Dr Annie Gray that uh, there was a bit of sort of work around the house that ladies could do, which would be working in the the buttery, the, the sort of dairy area. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, they could. But again, it was meant to be a genteel pastime. So it wasn't for money. You know, they went, it was just to occupy themselves and for them to portray themselves and sort of, you know, being industrious at home and not being idle or, you know, frivolous. So it was sort of all tied up in the image of women at the time. Moving on to what the men did, obviously there was quite a lot of war during this period. It's a common occurrence, of course, through human history. There was no shortage of tension or conflict during the Georgian period. Mike's question is, why was Britain involved in so many wars and battles during this period? But I suppose to answer that, we should probably explain how many wars there were first. (laughs) I think there are actually too many to count because for much of the Georgian period, Britain was at war, usually with France. But many of these conflicts were played out on the world stage to defend or expand the burgeoning British Empire. So the Seven Years' War, for example, which lasted from 1756 to 1763, secured Canada and sort of eventually India for Britain. But then, as we've hinted on already, at the other side of the coin, um, we had the American War of Independence, which lasted from 1775 to 1783. And that's when the French, Spanish and Dutch supported the revolutionary colonists and that contributed to Britain's defeat and the loss of one of its most important imperial assets. William asks, what was the effect on Britain of losing the War of Independence? 
So losing the 13 American colonies was certainly a massive blow. Huge sums of money had been spent on the war, and yet it still ended in defeat. So it was a great sort of blow to the nation. But political life quickly settled into much the same patterns as before the war. And interestingly, the economy actually recovered very rapidly. So by the 1790s, Americans were purchasing twice as much from Britain as they had as colonists in the 1760s. So in a way, Britain actually kind of benefited in the end, which is an interesting way to think about it. Jimmy has a question about later conflicts with the French Emperor Napoleon during the Georgian period. He asks, how close did Napoleon's army come to crossing the Channel and landing in England? I think I've got a bit of an answer on this one, but you're the expert, so I'll let you explain about the coastal defences. That's right, yeah. So in 1803, it was really believed that Napoleon's 90,000-strong army was poised to cross the Channel in a single night. But the British Navy, though, had complete control of the Channel, but we were still very anxious in Britain and we were poised for war. However, in the end, the Royal Navy proved reliable and Napoleon called off the invasion. But despite this, the government still began building a chain of 103 single cannon Martello towers to guard the cliffless Suffolk and Kent coast between Eastbourne and Folkestone. And then in 1812, this was actually um, extended into Essex and Suffolk. Yes. And I think one even got converted into a house on the television programme Grand Designs, which is oh, really? on How here interesting. in the UK. Yes, a, a good one if you can look it up on. Yeah. It might be on YouTube. I'm not sure if it is. But um, regarding Napoleon, you can listen to episode 110 to get a bit more information on that period as well. So Industrial Revolution is our next segment, Amy. This began around... 1760. It's a key part of the story of the Georgian period, as we mentioned in our introduction. Mary's got a question for us on this. Just how dangerous was it to work in a mill or factory during the Industrial Revolution? Mm, Well, factories and mills were notorious for being extremely dangerous, especially textile mills, because spinning machines in the mills were often left unguarded and they posed a serious risk. And there are numerous cases of adults and, unfortunately, children getting mangled in the fast-working machinery. And on top of that, there was also really bad ventilation. And so much of the cotton fluff that was circulating around the mill all day sort of landed on the workers' lungs, causing really terrible lung complaints. Another question on the Industrial Revolution here from Hamid. Did the Industrial Revolution bring any improvements to the lives of ordinary working people? I think if we look at the Industrial Revolution as a whole, like all the way into the Victorian period, I think that there were improvements. But I think these were really only seen later on in the 19th century when a series of reforms were made. So, for example, legislation was passed to protect child workers from being exploited and to ensure that they received a sort of basic level of education. But I think it took an incredibly long time, really, for ordinary working people to see the benefits. Mm. The Industrial Revolution saw major improvements in transport. Miriam asks, uh, to what extent was rail transport available to the public at the time in the Georgian period? 
Okay, so the Georgian period did see a number of pioneer railways built, but they were really only used for transporting goods. So the first passenger carrying public railway was opened by the Swansea and Mumbles Railway at Oystermouth in 1807. But this used a horse-drawn carriage on an existing tram line. So not really what we would call a proper sort of railway in today's sort of speech. So it wasn't really until 1825 that the first proper passenger train was launched. And this was on the Stockton and Darlington Railway, which covered a distance of 27 miles. And it was the first locomotive hauled public railway in the world. Yes, regarding the railways, you can listen to a separate podcast on that. That's episode 66, How the Railways Shaped the Nation. Okay, on to our final two questions now. It's gone quite quickly, this one. Brody Marshall Music on Instagram has a really intriguing question about how Georgian people considered the past from their point of view. So were they interested in history and what did they think about the past? A number of Georgians were indeed incredibly interested in the past and they also understood how important it was to preserve historic buildings and their collections. For example, Henrietta Harley, who was the Countess of Oxford and Mortimer, she was descended on her mother's side from the Dukes of Norfolk. And as a result, she had a great love of Bolsover Castle, which is an English heritage castle in Derbyshire. That castle had been remodelled by the first Duke and his father in the 17th century. And so what Henrietta did was she had her own country house called Welbeck Abbey in Nottinghamshire, and she remodelled it in various styles. But one of those styles was the Jacobean style. And she went to Bolsover, which had once been part of her, you know, in her family's collection of houses, and she copied elements. So there's a chimney piece that she replicated at Welbeck Abbey. And she also put her ancestors' heraldry all over her house. So she was incredibly interested in her past. And as a result, you know, tried to preserve it as well as she could. Do they, broadly speaking, romanticise the uh, Greek, Roman, antiquity sort of era, classical architecture, all that sort of thing? Was it that that they focused on most? Well, so they were deeply interested in that, but they didn't consider that necessarily part of their past. If they were looking at, so for example, with Henrietta, she was looking at, you know, particularly her own lineage, her her ancestry, and a lot of other Georgians did the same. And although we have the sort of fashionable style of the classical design and architecture, another sort of subset of architecture during this time was the Gothic, the Gothic revival. And there are a number of houses that were built in this style because they were trying to sort of replicate medieval England. So think of medieval cathedrals. They were taking elements of that and instilling it in their houses as a way to sort of promote the past. Yes, and I've heard the Gothic style can easily be summed up as pointy windows, is that? <laughs> yes. No, true, there are a lot of pointy windows. In London, there's Strawberry Hill House, which was, it's a beautiful villa, completely designed in the Gothic style by Horace Walpole, who was a very prominent sort of gentleman in the 18th century. He wrote a lot of diaries and he was quite catty and he's a great character and he's written loads of letters and diaries that are preserved in today. So, yeah. 
interesting, interesting that they're interested in that in that style because obviously yeah. those windows are quite narrow I yes. think, aren't they really and the regency style you know broadly speaking the georgian style is is fairly wide but sort of oblong rectangular sort of mm. designs which let in more light so yeah there's an interesting contrast going on there between what would have been modern at the time uh this sash window look and then you've got the gothic look as well as an alternative uh, yeah. as people look back so it's interesting that that people's tastes have are actually quite varied yeah and they debated about it constantly so it was seen that Gothic could be used for repairing old houses. So we talked about restoration of old houses before. You know, you could tear down a wing that was once a sort of Jacobean wing or a Tudor wing if you sort of did it up in a Georgian version of that style, so a Georgian Gothic style. But it wasn't really seen as a style that should be used for modern houses. It was seen as a bit quirky and a bit strange. But still, people did enjoy it. Interesting. Lastly, of course, you can't mention the Georgian period without thinking of period dramas. I'm sure our listeners enjoy a a Jane Austen or a Bridgerton or something like that. So was it very different to how it's presented in films and TV shows, uh, the Georgian and Regency periods? This is a question from ginger.curls through Instagram. I think a number of the period dramas have done an excellent job at recreating the atmosphere and, I guess, the look of the Georgian and Regency periods. I mean, if we take Bridgerton, as you just mentioned, as an example, Ranger's House, which is an 18th century house located in Blackheath in London, that was used as the front of Bridgerton House in the series. And it's completely aesthetically appropriate and it fitted the genre very well. And they sort of, you know, made it a little bit more fairy tale like by adding wisteria to the front and making it very beautiful. You know, that was good. I really like that. But of course, Bridgerton and other dramas of the 18th century, they do make it seem as though the Georgian period was you know, sort of fairy tale like, which in reality, of course, it really wasn't. But despite that, I really love them. And I think that they're excellent ways to engage new audiences with Georgian history. Yes, absolutely. And you can really sort of experience Georgian history through these buildings today. And that's obviously the key point to make, isn't it, really? I mean, Mm. if you were picking a a top three, perhaps dotted around England, uh, Mm -hmm. which Georgian houses would you recommend that listeners have a look oh, at perhaps on gosh. a on a light you know once in a lifetime trip to the UK or <laughs> or something I mean well there's there, like I mentioned there's so many I would absolutely beeline for Norfolk and go and have a look at Holcombe Hall because that was built in the 1720s and 30s and it's very much intact and so that's quite rare because you know lots of country houses change over time and you have the Victorian imprint or you have the 20th century imprint but Holcombe Hall is definitely one I would also recommend, oh, there's too many, gosh, but I'd recommend Harewood House in Yorkshire. That's got stunning interiors and beautiful gardens as well. So that would be a a really good one to see. Uh, Blenheim Palace, I haven't mentioned that. Blenheim Palace is in Oxfordshire, still the home of the Duke of Marlborough. And that is, it's a Baroque palace. So that's another element of classical architecture, but it's a little bit more fanciful. It's got a more sort of interesting and sort of magnificent sort of facade, but it's got absolutely beautiful interiors as well. 
Yeah, highly recommend. And I think the southwest is quite a good spot as well for Georgian architecture, isn't it? You've got Cheltenham and you've got Bath, which we mentioned at the beginning. They're fairly close together. I think they're about an hour or so mm-hmm. apart. Bristol has has some Georgian architecture in the Clifton area does, of the yes. city, which is very attractive. Also Brighton, you know, with Brighton Pavilion, that's very fanciful, interesting palace there that was built for the Prince Regent. You know, we're talking about the Regency. That's a very interesting one to go and look at. And Brighton has some nicely preserved Georgian architecture as well. Do we have some good places into the Midlands as well and into the north where we can still see Georgian architecture? Yes, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. There are definitely country houses dotted around throughout the country. So you'll always be able to find one of those. But Liverpool, also, if I'm just you know skipping ahead a bit to the north there, that has got a really amazing Georgian architecture. And we forget about that, but it's definitely well worth a visit too. Yes, that's true. And in fact, I believe um, one of the terraces featured in the TV series A House Through Time. I think it was the first... A series where they uh, investigated all the happenings within one particular house through all the records. Um, oh, right. Amazing. Yes. So that's a, a really good one to catch up on if you're in the UK and you're interested in catching up on that series. And we can't forget Oxford and Cambridge. They've also got excellent examples of Georgian architecture and the college designs. Yes. So really, if you look close enough, I'm sure you could probably find... A few buildings near you if you live in the UK. You know, you just have to look up, look around Mm -hmm. and go inside, potentially. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, Amy, thank you very much for talking to us about the Georgian and Regency period on uh, Ask the Expert for this special English Heritage podcast. It's been a really interesting discussion and I'm sure lots of people can um, find a bit of Georgian history somewhere near them. And thank you very much for explaining it to us. No, Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be learning about the secrets of Walkworth Castle in Northumberland through its varied architectural history. The only sounds you can hear is the rustle of trees and the gentle kind of burbling of the river. And then you enter this serene space and it's it's delightful. It's like it's a spiritual experience, I would say. You know, it's a really powerful place, the Hermitage. Thanks for listening. See you next time.